devices that I have to turn on here. One is done. One more coming up. Hey, this is pretty cool. Okay, something's not working. Okay. Ah, there it is. Okay. They can't do this to me if, anymore. What is balancing act that I got to do? That's all right. That's all right. We're here. And we're ready. This evening we're going to cover chapter 6 and 7 of Ezekiel, and we might be here till about 10 doing it, but um, I hope not. I really do. Ezekiel has been commissioned by God to be a watchman for the children of Judah in Babylon. But there's, there's some... There's some need to understand that he's going to still have to speak to people in Babylon that are there because of the captivity, but there's still some people in Israel, in the land of Israel, that are going to be coming later on to the third, in the third deportation, and they're, they're going to need to hear this message too. So the Lord is, is, uh, is giving this message to Ezekiel. Now, there have already been messages given to the children of Judah about their sin and about their, their rebellion uh, through the other prophets, Isaiah, Jer Jeremiah especially, uh, and so on. So this is uh, where we are, is, is the continuation of the uh, building of, of, the, of the judgment that, that the Lord is presenting to uh, Israel and Judah that he's going to do to them. So we begin reading verse 1 of chapter 6. And there's one phrase that you're going to see time and again, and I'll, I'll point them out, and you'll see them. You'll need to see the importance of it in a moment. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face toward the mountains of Israel, and prophesy against them, and say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills, to the rivers and to the valleys, Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you, and I will destroy your high places. It's important to keep in mind, as I was saying just a, a minute ago, that Ezekiel is already captive in Babylon, taken in the second deportation in 597 B.C. And there are still people in the southern kingdom of Judah since the nation as a whole has not been taken into captivity, and that's going to occur in 586 B.C. during the Babylon's third and final assault upon the nation. So Ezekiel is, is ministering to the captives in Babylon in that area that is called Tel Aviv, which is not Tel Aviv, Israel, but Tel Aviv in, uh, in the area of Babylon, which is about 200 miles north of the city of Babylon. Then I want you to remember also that Daniel who had been taken captive in the first deportation of 606 B.C., ministered to the captives as well as the Babylonian leadership in the city of Babylon. So they were in two different areas and two different times, but they, they, they did do some uh, crossover ministry, as it were, as far as uh, time is concerned. But the message of our present scriptural study, chapter 6 and 7 tonight, focuses on false worship. It focuses on false worship and on false worshipers. They being God's own people. 
the message directed to Israel, to the mountains of Israel, later on to the land of Israel. And when the Lord tells the prophet to set thy face, when, when he says to, to Ezekiel, set thy face, we need to understand that the 14 times that this phrase is used in Ezekiel, it always indicates God, God's hostility towards sinful people. When he says, set thy face, that's not a, that's not a pretty thing, you know, in the sense that it's, it's, it's not like, uh, you know, just kind of smile at somebody, you know. Set your face means you set it hard toward someone to indicate judgment. And in this case, it's his very own people. And, and the prophet obediently assumes God's stern stance toward the mountains of Israel. Why? Because that's where the idolatrous worship was taking place. We're reading on because of the two chapters are long. We're going to read on. And so m- much of this is very generalized. So it's not going to be real heavy, heavy duty in the sense of, uh, you know, picking out certain verses. Well, we will do that. But as far as just, you know, we, reading the text, it's not going to be a, a hard thing for us to do. So we move on to verse 4, if I can. Oh, I, I know why. Here we go. I'm in the wrong buttons. There we go. In verse 4 it says, And your altar shall be desolate, and your images shall be broken, and I will cast down your slain men before your idols. And I will lay the dead carcasses of the children of Israel before their idols. And I will scatter your bones round about your altar. So get the picture that, that, that's being given here. The picture of, of these uh, uh, altars, these places in the high places, the, the groves uh, where they were, were uh, worshiping uh, other gods. He says, I will cast down your slain men before your idols. In other words, the idols are dead, but so will you be. You'll be dead too. And I'll lay the dead carcasses of the children of Israel before their idols, and I'll scatter your bones around about your altars. In all your dwelling places, the cities shall be laid waste, and the high places shall be desolate, that your altars may be laid waste and made desolate, and your idols may be broken and cease, and your images may be cut down, and your works may be abolished, and the slain shall fall in the midst of you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. That phrase, and you shall know that I am the Lord, is the key, ver- the key uh, passage in this whole section. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel set his face against the mountains of Israel, showing God's anger and fierce condemnation of the mountains, which were the major sites of the people's false idolatrous worship. False, false worship centers had been built throughout the nation. They'd been in the ravines, in the valleys, but mostly, mostly in the mountains and in the high places. In fact, they're warned about this years and years earlier. And again, this comes in the, this comes in the, in the, in the giving of the law. Actually, the second giving of the law, which is the book of Deuteronomy. And there in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, it says, These are the statutes and judgments which you shall observe to do in the land which the Lord God of thy fathers give thee to possess, or uh, give thee, giveth thee to possess it all the days that you live upon the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which you shall possess serve their gods upon the high mountains and upon the the hills and under every green tree. Notice what they're being told to do. When you get into the land, you start destroying these places. You lay them waste. And then he says in verse 3, And you shall overthrow their altars and break their pillars, and burn their groves with fire. And you shall hew down the graven images of their gods, and destroy the names of them out of that place. Now stop there and just think of what the, what, what, what the Lord is telling them to do. Destroy everything. Keep nothing. Make nothing worth keeping in any way, shape, or form. And then he says in verse 4, listen. He says, you shall not do so unto the Lord your God. In other words, you are not to worship like these people have worshipped before you. You are not to do so unto the Lord your God. That means in this manner you do not worship me. Thou art to not make any graven images. 
Even if this is your conception or your understanding of what God, what you think God is. No. God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We're never to worship images. We're never to carve out any kind of images to have in a position or a place where they can be venerated. But people refused. They refused to listen and, and, and heed the commandments of the Lord. And because they turned against him, he pronounced judgment on their places of false worship. He pronounced the judgment on the groves and the hills and the mountains. The Canaanites, whom, whom they defeated in taking the promised land, worshipped their gods on the hilltops. That's, that was why they began to worship on the hilltops. The worship of these gods would degenerate into all sorts of sexual orgies, satisfying the flesh, but proved to be an abomination before the Lord. In fact, if you go to Deuteronomy 18, verse 9, it says, when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abomination of those nations. And an abomination is, 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 is the most dreadful of, of, of sins. Now those groves that they enjoyed so much were going to become their graves. They were going to go from groves to graves as the Lord was going to bring judgment upon them for their idolatry. Jerusalem hadn't been destroyed by the, Babylon, uh, by the Babylonians yet, but that was coming. And everything that they placed their trust in was going to be taken away in this judgment. Everything was going to be taken away from them because they had disobeyed God in, in such a, a, a willful manner. You would think that by this point, as many people had, that had already been taken into captivity, that they would be awakened out of their spiritual sleep. But they were still in deep spiritual slumber. And the Lord was going to finish the work of placing the nation of Judah into captivity. There would be three deportations. Two had already happened. And you would think they'd stop. But they hadn't. Even today, even today in terms of some type of false worship, the church, or at least some great segment of it, needs to be awakened out of, out of its slumber. We're, we're turning worship into a joke in, in, in some places. I, I, I was appalled. I think I mentioned this last week, but I didn't remember the name of the... Supposedly in some churches, you know, these big churches where they're entertaining thousands and thousands of kids and stuff, they have this, this thing called the Harlem Shake. I don't know if you ever heard of it. But, you know, you, and they do this in church. This is like the big deal. May, may I tell you that when I saw the video, I said, this isn't worship. This is, this is, this is demonic worship. Pure and simple, it's demonic. What they do Rather than praise God from whom all blessings flow. Rather than praise him who made all things and all creatures here below. Rather than praise him and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They do that. And it's disheartening to see. And that's not the only thing, too, but I'm not going to give you the, the laundry list here. It's just sickening. The fact of the matter is this. Paul, and I, and I know that I, I, I brought this up a little bit uh, this past weekend, but Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 through 16, quite simply he just says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. In other words, take a stand against those things and say something about those things. And then he says, for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Now, remember, he's speaking to the church. And if there were things happening in secret that were, that were done for the satisfying of the flesh, Paul is saying, hey, that needs to be reproved, not, not uh, accepted. But then he says this, Verse 13, he says, But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, 
for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore, he saith, awake thou that sleepest. So even to the church, we're, being, you know, we're, we're hearing this message. Wake up, church. Wake up. And arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that you walk circumspectly. In other words, walk carefully. Walk this walk of Christ carefully. Circumspectly means that you're aware of everything around you. You don't take anything for granted in your walk for the Lord. He says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools. Fools just go whichever way. And I'm sorry to say that many times people in the church are like fools who go from place to place because here's the next new thing. The next new thing's happening. Then he says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Well, they're more evil now than ever before. And we need to redeem the time. We need to take every opportunity because the days are evil. Verse 7 gives us an indication as to why God is doing this. I'm, I'm back in, in Ezekiel 6. Verse 7 gives us an indication as to why God is doing this. He wants them to repent and he wants them to return to him. That is why he says, and you shall know that I am the Lord. You shall know. Four times in these 14 verses, this statement is made. And you shall know that I am the Lord. There is no God like our God, folks. He stands alone, and people can either accept that or they can reject it. But if we've accepted that truth, then we need to stand on that truth without compromise. If they reject it, they need to understand there are consequences to their actions or their lack of actions. The gravest being the wrath of God coming upon their lives. And we see it clearly happening to the nation of Israel over many, many years, even centuries. And yet God continues to show his love for them. And that's the wonders of our, the wonders of our God. But that, that doesn't mean that we take, we take for granted who he is or that we take advantage of what he does in his patience and long-suffering toward us. In Ezekiel 6, verses 8 through 10, it says, It says, Yet will I leave a remnant that you may have some that shall escape the sword among the nations when you shall be scattered through the countries. God always has had a remnant. There's always been a remnant of people that have been faithful to him. And even though they've had to go through the sword of, of, of persecution or the, or, or the trials or the storms of, 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 of tem, um, great temptation or great uh, tribulation, God keeps them and watches over them and protects them. And, is, and, and this is the, this is the, the, the very uh, incubator of, 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 his, of, his, of his people. He protects them, you see. But he's given everyone an opportunity to be that remnant. Verse 9 says, and they, and they that escape of you shall remember me among the nations, whether they shall be carried captives, because I am broken with their whorish heart. And that's speaking of all the people which, which have departed from me, and with their eyes which go a-whoring after their idols. See, the children of Israel were supposed to be married to their God, and this is why there is this spiritual adultery, as, 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 as it were, that is being condemned here by God toward his people. And they shall loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed in, the, in all their abominations. Now look at verse 10. Is that, oh, this is the second part of verse 9, I'm sorry. Which says, departed from me, and, and with their eyes which go a-whoring after their idols, and they shall loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed in all their abominations. But notice verse 10, and they shall know that I am the Lord, and that I have not said in vain that I would do this evil unto them. See, it doesn't matter how many prophets they had that were telling them, listen, go ahead and do whatever you want. I mean, you know, God's going to bless you. 
God's not going to destroy you. God's not going to hurt you. God's not going to judge you. And listen, don't, don't get settled in Babylon because you're going to come right back home and you know, you're going to prosper once again. But God was serious. He said, listen, I've got to do this. I'm going to do this. I have to do this because I'm a righteous God. I'm a just God and I'm going to do this. But the Lord has always had a faithful remnant that loves him and serves him. And even, even during the darkest times in Israel's history, they would be a witness of, of the Lord wherever they would go and, and, and so should we. I, I'm, I'm kind of saddened to say that those of us who truly believe the word of God from Genesis to Revelation are a remnant of, in the church of Jesus Christ today. And I'm not saying that from the standpoint of being proud about it. Jesus himself said the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. But the church of Jesus Christ is, 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 the, is the body that stands upon Jesus and trusts in the Lord. Not in their whims or in their own desires. And just as Paul was telling the Ephesian church in the previous passage in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 8 he says there in Ephesians 5, for you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. Why do we say we're children of light and then we put on darkness and, and do the things that the enemy does? That, that, uh, that just covers the light that God has given us in Christ. But notice how the actions of the people affected the Lord. Notice how the actions affected the Lord. He was broken over their unfaithfulness. He was broken their wandering eyes that went after idols and caused them to leave the Lord. The words we hear God use are not idle words, but by them the, the people would know who the true and living God is. And now this judgment may, may seem harsh, but, but it was born out of years, years of refusal by the people to repent of their sins and return to the Lord. What must be remembered is this. Something that Jesus said he said but he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes for unto whom much is given of him shall be much required that's what I want you to see to whom much is given of him shall be much required and to whom men have committed much of him they will ask the more and the point is that the Lord requires much of us too. He requires much of us too. As with Israel, he has given us so much. He gave Israel so much. But he's given us much too. He's given us the knowledge and the understanding of his word. He's given us the blessings of his love and his mercies. He's given us the abundance of his grace. And what are we doing with those things? What are we doing with what we know? One more thing before we move on. Verses 8 and through 10 emphasize God's heart being crushed by the people's whorish hearts and eyes desiring the emptiness of idols. In the same vein, let me, let me ask you these questions. In the same vein, do we read God's word without letting it read us? In other words, do we read, as a, read it as an obligation or do we read it because we want to know God and we want him to know us? He already knows us. The fact of the matter is, is the word of God a mirror to our hearts that we can see ourselves and know where we need to be with him? Are we reading it in that way? So again, do we read God's word without letting it read us? Do we go to church without meeting God there? Do we go to church without meeting God? This is a question we as pastors should ask every weekend. Are you here because you want to hear somebody sing or you want to hear somebody do this or that or your kids are going to you know, perform in some kind of play or whatever? Or did you come here to meet God? Because that's why we're here. We're here to meet God in his word, 
in prayer, in the power of his Holy Spirit, but we are here to meet God. Do we sing songs of worship without truly worshiping him? Do we say prayers without actually praying? I think I mentioned on the weekend, you know, that going to, you know, confession, you know, you'd be assigned so many prayers to pray. And, you know, we, we didn't want to sit around just thinking about it. We just, amen, boom, out of there, you know. So is that, that's praying without praying. Or just praying words that's written down in the page but without praying from the heart that says, God, oh God, oh my God, have mercy on me. The sin that breaks God's heart should break our hearts as well. It is of great importance we remember that the Holy Spirit is not a mindless force. The Holy Spirit is not a mindless power. It's not the force in Star Wars. But a person who can be grieved. Ephesians 4 verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. There are at least four reasons why we shouldn't grieve the Lord. At least four reasons. I won't just give you four. We shouldn't grieve the Lord because, first of all, He leads us. He leads us. He helps us, secondly. He preserves us, thirdly. And he comforts us, fourthly. He leads us, he helps us, he preserves us, he comforts us. Folks, can we find our way without him? We've tried already. We didn't work. He does. And so he leads us. He leadeth me beside still waters, as the psalmist said in Psalm 23. Can we worship him without his help to prepare us to do so? It's always a hard thing because of time that we tend to forget that sometimes the best prayer before church is the prayer before church. The one that says, Lord, I'm going to church tonight. I'm going to fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ, but more than anything, I just come because you're worthy of my praise. You're worthy of my worship. And I'm bearing, a, I'm bearing a load that only you, I know, can take and lift from me. And Lord, I, I, can, I, can, I can pray that prayer now at home, but, but I want to honor you. I want to honor you with my brothers and sisters in Christ as we worship you together, as we pray together and pray for one another, as we lift up our our voices in praise as we study your word. I, I, I want to do that. Can we contend for ourselves without the one who preserves us? Can we revive ourselves in the midst of trouble without his comfort and his presence? I think we know the answers to those questions. Verse 11. Thus saith the Lord God. Now this is God speaking to Ezekiel and telling him to do something. He says, smite with thine hand and stamp with thy foot and say, alas, for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. To smite with a hand is to slap or clap, make some kind of a noise of that, of that type, and then to stamp the foot, and then to proclaim. And then he says, he that is far, verse 12, he that is far off shall die of the pestilence, 
and he that is near shall fall by the sword, and he that remaineth and is besieged shall die by the famine. Thus will I accomplish my fury upon them. Look at the first part of verse 13. Then shall you know that I am the Lord, when their slain men shall be among the idols round about their altars, upon every high hill, in all the tops of the mountains, and under every green tree, and under every thick oak, the place where they did offer sweet savor to all their idols. So will I stretch out my hand upon them and make the land desolate, yea, more desolate than the wilderness toward Diblat, in all their habitations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. Throughout the book of Ezekiel, as well as the, some of the other prophets, we find a pattern. We find a pattern of symbolism followed by the significance of the symbolism. In this case, the Lord commands Ezekiel to clap his hands and stomp his feet as another display of God's displeasure. Now, sometimes clapping hands is, is, is a good thing, but not here. Because it's, it, it, it's, it's a sign of, of displeasure from God. And he then is to speak of the judgment that is coming because of all their abominations before the Lord. And what he's saying here in this passage is that there's going to be no escape. There will be no escape. Except to whom? To the remnant. God will take care of the remnant. God will do what he has to do. But those who have sinned willfully before the Lord in rebelling against him and in disobedience, he's got to bring his judgment. All those places of pagan worship, all those places they went to so they, could, so they could satisfy their flesh, all those places they thought would give them some sort of spiritual and physical happiness and fulfillment would now be nothing more than places of death for them. And again, the groves would turn into their graves. Now, it might be easy to sit in judgment of these people. It might be, you know, for us to say, oh, man, those, those Israelites or those, those, those children of, of, of Israel, boy, they're just really terrible people, bad. Be easy to do that, isn't it? But we have to examine our own hearts. We have to examine our own hearts and our own actions before the Lord. He alone deserves to be worshipped. He alone, our God, deserves to be worshipped. He alone is to be trusted, and He alone is to satisfy every need and holy desire. I thought of Psalm 37 today, beginning of verse 3, that says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Now, that's a simple thing. Trust in the Lord and do good. Put your trust and faith in the Lord and then do that which honors the Lord. Do good. So shall thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. In other words, I will bless you in the land for your obedience. And then he says, delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Well, what is the desire of your heart? Really, the only desire of my heart is, to de you know, is what he desires for me. And what he desires overall. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth, whoops, my fingers got fast. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way. In other words, don't, don't be all bummed out because of everybody else, okay? Fretting, I think I said this a few weeks ago, fretting is not fearing. Fretting is like, you know, why, why Lord, is you know, this guy prospering and we're not or whatever, you know, we're worried about somebody else. So he said, fret not thyself because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who bringeth wicked uh, devices to pass. And I thought about delight and that was one reason why I wanted to sing that song, I Will Delight in the Law of the Lord, because of, of these very words that are given to us who are, who are these believers in, in the Lord. And that, that is, that's uh, Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man 
that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. In all of this, God is seeking to reestablish in their hearts the fact that he and he alone is God. But the fact is they were delighting in themselves. They were delighting in their flesh. They were delighting in, in the things that did not please God that were actually abhorrent to God. They were actually the, you know, that, that you ever eaten something that you, was just bad? In other words, it was, it was putrid or acrid or whatever, and you bite into it and you think you're going to enjoy it, and all of a sudden, man, you're just like, whoa! You ever had something like that? I have. I, I'm, you know, I, I've eaten quite a lot of stuff that, you know, from time to time when you do that, you run into one of those really bad things. So multiply that hundreds of times. And this is how that kind of sin is abhorrent to God. So we're putting it in overdrive for chapter seven, chapter 7. And again, this is pretty much a lot of repeat of what's going on. So that's why we're going to read a lot of it. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Also, thou son of man, thus saith the Lord God unto the land of Israel. So now, not only does he speak to the mountains, but now he speaks to all of the land of Israel. An end, the end is come upon the four corners of the land. This is the beginning of, of, of a real poetic passage in the Hebrew. And I'll explain that in just a moment. Verse 3. Now is the end come upon thee, and I will send mine anger upon thee, and will judge thee according to thy ways, and will recompense upon thee all thine abominations. So in these first three verses, judgment could no longer be averted. It was certain. And again, it was because of their abominations. Notice how many times we see the word abomination. Chapter 7, verses, verses 3, 4, 6, and 9. A reference to their immoral idolatry. Their immoral idolatry. Our God, who is patient and long-suffering, will not exceed the limits of his patience because he is also a just and righteous God. And just as he extended 120 years for the people of the earth in the time of Noah, so he gave his own people time to, return and, uh, to repent and to return to him. God does this always. He gives us time. He gives his people time to get right. So then in verse 4 he says, And mine eyes shall not spare thee, neither will I have pity, but I will recompense thy ways upon thee, and thine abomination shall be in the midst of thee, and you shall know that I am the Lord. There it is again. But the first part of the verse, And mine eyes shall not spare thee. Do you know why it's said that way? It's said that way because they're believing in idols, or they're, they're trusting in idols, or they're worshiping idols that have eyes, but they cannot see. But the true and living God has an eye, and he says, Mine eye shall not spare thee. Because you've been worshiping an idol that has eyes, but they can't see you. Neither will I have pity. But I will recompense thy ways upon thee, and thine abominations shall be in the midst of thee, and you shall know, you shall know, you shall know, you shall know that I am the Lord. Not these other things. Not this world. To refuse his grace. Now this is a very strong statement, but I, but I intentionally wanted to say it this way. To refuse his grace is to receive his wrath. Ultimately, to refuse his grace is to receive his wrath. But he's given so many opportunities to keep you from it. In essence, he's saying, in contrast to these idols that you've been worshiping, you're going to know that I am the Lord. Verse 5. Thus saith the Lord God, an evil, an only evil, behold, is come. Again, there's, there's a sense of, of this rhythmic, poetic, you know, back a couple of verses. 
there was that, uh, that statement uh, at the beginning of, verse, uh, of chapter 7. The end, the end. And here, an evil, an only evil. Behold, has come. An end has come. The end is come. It watches for thee. Behold, it is come. The morning is come upon thee. O thou that dwellest in the land, the time is come, the day of trouble is near, and not the sounding again of the mountains. Now will I shortly pour out my fury upon thee and accomplish mine anger upon thee, and I will judge thee according to thy ways and will recompense thee for all thine abominations. And mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. I will recompense thee according to thy ways and thine abominations that are in the midst of thee. And, and notice this, a little different, but it's the same. And you shall know that I am the Lord that smiteth. There's a lot of names that are given, you know, the Lord, our, our peace, the Lord, uh, our, our righteousness, and, and so on. Many Hebrew uh, statements, uh, the Lord my provider, you know, and so on. Here, this, this is the Lord that smiteth. It is Yahweh Naka. Yahweh Naka. Simple spelling, N-A-K-A. That is the clap or the slap that God told Ezekiel to do at the beginning of chapter 6. the slap, and the stomp. The repetition we find in this portion of Ezekiel is a reminder that this is written, again, in Hebrew poetic style. It may be repetitious for us, but in Hebrew reading, there is rhyme and there is rhythm. We'll read on, verse 10. Behold the day, behold it is come. The morning has gone forth. The rod has blossomed, pride has budded. Isn't that interesting? Language that seems like something beautiful, but it isn't because of pride. Verse 11. Violence is risen up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor of their multitude, nor of any of theirs. Neither shall there be wailing for them. The time is come, the day draweth near. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn. For wrath is upon all the multitude thereof. For the seller shall not return to that which is sold, although they were yet alive. For the vision is touching the whole multitude thereof, which shall not return. Neither shall any strengthen himself in the iniquity of his life. In a very simple way, let me just say that when you sold your land, what this is saying is this, when you sold your land, you sold your inheritance. When you sold your land, you sold your inheritance. As much, and as much as the buyer was rejoicing, you would mourn. But in this judgment, no one will win. They'll all be wiped out. Buyer, seller, whoever. All wiped out. The land won't matter anymore because they won't be in it. They will either be in captivity in Babylon or they will be dead. Verse 14, they have blown the trumpet even to make all ready, but none goeth to the battle, for my wrath is upon all the multitude thereof. The sword is without, and the pestilence and the famine within. He that is in the field shall die with a sword, and he that is in the city, famine and pestilence shall devour him. There, was, there would be no escape, in other words. No escape. God is making this very clear. And the only escape was repentance and return to God. The blowing of the shofar really was more than just the summoning of the people to battle. But with Israel, it was to a degree an acknowledgement that the Lord comes forth to battle for them. If, if, they, if they heeded the Lord and did what he called them to do, 
And they did it in obedience. If, if they are called together for battle, how many times do we see when the people feared their enemies and they cried out to God that, the, that God came and battled for them? A number of times. But the Lord here is saying, I'm not coming forth with you any longer. You can blow the trumpet. You can blow the shofar. It's not going to do any good. You're going to be turned over to your enemies. These are settling statements. In other words, they're settled with God. This is what's going to happen. And God knows this because he knows the beginning from the end. And the end from the beginning. Verse 16. But they that escape of them shall escape and shall be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them mourning, everyone for his iniquity. Now, that, that shows some, some sense of the heart of those that do believe in God and trust in God, that they're, they're praying for, the, for their iniquity. I mean, they're praying for the iniquity of their people, but they're also praying for themselves. They realize they're sinners and they, they need to cry out to God. That's, that's the difference between those who truly believe in the Lord and those who think they believe in the Lord and think they're safe and think they're all right and they don't need anybody to help them along and, and whatnot. And they can go to church whenever they want. They can do whatever they want to do and they can worship whenever they want to worship if they worship at all. But these who escape mourn. I wonder how often we mourn when we see our nation and the condition it's in because of sin. And, and people today that are professing Christ but not living Christ. And we don't, we're not better. Every day we have to, we, we, have to we, we fight that battle on our knees. Every day we lay our hearts before God. Every day we cry out, God, Lord Jesus, come quickly. All hands shall be feeble. All knees shall be weak as water. They shall also gird themselves with sackcloth and horror shall cover them and shame shall be upon all faces and baldness upon all their heads. The few that were left in the land would have no strength within them. They would be mourning over all that has taken place upon them in that city. Verse 19. They shall cast their silver in the streets and their gold shall be removed. Their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them in the day of wrath of the Lord. They shall not satisfy their souls, neither fill their bowels, because it is the stumbling block of their iniquity. How many times do we hear that the love of money is the root of all evil? And what's one of the major situations that uh, have been brought, uh, brought up politically today is, is the economy, how bad it is. And so you have people from all sides, you know, saying, do this, do that, buy gold, buy silver, buy this, buy that, buy, you know, save up, uh, you know, buy this food that'll last you for 25 years. I don't want to do that because I don't believe we have 25 years. I believe the Lord Jesus can come at any moment. And every day he'll always provide those who trust him. And notice this. As for the beauty of his ornament, he set it in majesty that they made the images of their abominations and of their detestable things therein. Therefore, have I set it far from them. I'll tell you now that this is this is the sanctuary of the temple. And I will give it into the hands of the strangers for a prey and to the wicked of the earth for a spoil and they shall pollute it. My face will I turn also from them and they shall pollute my secret place. For the robbers shall enter into it and defile it. The sanctuary of the temple, the place of majesty and the ornament of beauty was going to be destroyed and it was going to be polluted. 
and the secret place, what would that be but the Holy of Holies? The secret place would be profaned all because of their sin. These were the consequences. Verse 23. Make a chain. For the land is full of bloody crimes. And the city is full of violence. So God tells Ezekiel now to do something else. Make a chain. And gives a picture of, of, of what the chain does. They're chained to their sin. They're, they think they're free, right? But they're not. They're captive to, to their enemies. They're captive to their sin more than anything. The city is full of violence. Wherefore I will bring the worst of the heathen and they shall possess their houses. Whoops, there's make a chain. I guess I missed one. Let's go on. Wherefore I will bring the worst of the heathen and they shall possess their houses. I will also make the pomp of their strong to cease and their holy places shall be defiled. Destruction cometh and they shall seek peace and there shall be none. Mischief shall come upon mischief and rumor shall be upon rumor. Then shall they seek a vision of the prophet, but the law shall perish from the priest and counsel from the ancients. The king shall mourn, and the prince shall be clothed with desolation, and the hands of the people of the land shall be troubled. I will do unto them after their way, and according to their deserts, Will I judge them? That's not deserts. Just letting you know. Deserts, okay. According to their deserts will I judge them. And they shall know that I am the Lord. The Babylonians were a wicked people and as they came upon the southern kingdom of Judah when, when things got tough they will be looking for a prophet of God to tell them what is going to happen. The people in other words. They'll be looking for a prophet when the Babylonians come. But it's going to be too late. God tried to speak to them, but they refused to listen. In fact, in Jeremiah 44, verses 16 and 17, listen to how the people responded to a prophet of God. Listen how they responded to Jeremiah. Verse 16, As for the word that thou hast spoken unto us in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee. They told, they told Jeremiah right, right out, or outright, they just said, hey, we're not going to listen. But notice this. But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto the queen of heaven. Most people are still doing that today. They're still doing that today. And to pour out drink offerings unto her as we have done, we and our fathers, our kings, and our princes in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, for then we had plenty of vit victuals and were well and saw no evil. When we were doing all those things, boy, we were prosperous. Had what we needed. We're going to do that. We're not going to listen to you. But let me tell you, let me, let, me, let me make this comment as we get ready to close this study tonight. Because it's going to sound weird. But it's actually biblical. The Lord was going to hurt them to heal them. The Lord needed to hurt them to heal them. There's a few places we can go. I'm just going to give you this one place. Hebrews chapter 12. We'll close with this tonight. Hebrews 12, verse 5. 5, 6, and 7. Paul said this, and, and you have forgotten, he said. 
You have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Don't despise the discipline that God is bringing you to correct you. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receiveth. He does so because he loves them. And this is not only to individuals, this is even to this, this whole nation of people that he called by his own name and called them his own. And then he says, and we'll close with this verse, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? A good father will correct his children because a good father loves his children. And may I say to you that if we have the encouragement at all tonight in this whole scenario that we've seen in these two chapters, the, the, the good and the encouragement is this. There is, again, a nation, and it is called Israel. And God is bringing his people back into that nation after so many years of chastening. But they have seven years left. And those seven years are the seven years that we've been dealing with in the book of Revelation, in the book of Daniel, in the book of Habakkuk, in the book of Obadiah, in our studies of the books of Jeremiah and Isaiah, the feasts of Israel, everything that we've been dealing with keeps pointing back to the goodness and mercy of God toward his people because he said he would never destroy them because that would then break his covenant and God is not a covenant breaker. So, be encouraged be encouraged, be blessed, examine yourself to see that you're in the faith. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the many good things, Lord, that you have done for us, for the many good things that you, can be, that you continue to be for us, and for the many good things that you continue to provide for us as we wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that those who may be burdened by their walk or burdened by their lives, Lord, struggling, Lord, with, with temptation or struggling with all kinds of issues in their lives, Lord, that they would tonight just release those things to you in prayer. Release them to you, Lord God, and surrender. Even where they are sitting, where they're sitting now, and say, Lord Jesus, cleanse me. Show yourself strong for me. Fill me with your spirit. Baptize me in your love. Strengthen my heart, Lord God, not to trust in myself, but to trust in you. Lord, I receive you. I receive your chastening, I receive, Lord God, the things that I realize have come upon me because I have 
taken my eyes off of you and I want to come back. Well, we're thankful, Lord, that you are a merciful God who takes us back because we're your children. We're not just anyone. We bless you, Father. We praise you for your forgiveness and for your mercies and for your love and for the cross. And Lord, as this weekend we think of the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead, Lord, we, we are so blessed to know that we can rejoice in your resurrection every day, even right now. And today, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus conquered sin and death for us because he, con because he conquered death in the tomb. And he's given us the privilege, the privilege of, and the blessing of eternal life. Thank you, Father, for this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Shall we sing?